0: Welcome back to the TMBA pod. On this very podcast, just a few weeks ago, my co-host, the boss man, bemoaned the state of flip-flop quality in the world. And what happened next shouldn't surprise us. Listeners to this show had in fact started a product business that manufactured flip-flops and not just any business, one that's doing really, really well. And so we thought, what the heck, let's get them on the show and hear the story and boss man you did this interview and i had a quick pre-listen to the conversation i have to say you covered some deeply philosophical
1: stuff okay first question can american men embrace the backstrap on the flip-flop will there be a point in time where that happens
2: possibly possibly
1: this is a very critical question indeed i think it's time that we adopt the backstrap. But I will leave it up to you, listener. Not you European listeners. You've already adopted it. You American listeners. Should we adopt the backstrap? Our guest has done something amazing. Starting a physical products business, getting your physical product into big box retail, that is these big stores at the mall and these stores that have existed for a long time in America, Nordstrom's being one of them, is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to have an idea to manufacture it, to be able to sell it, to be able to distribute it, to be able to keep track of your cash flow, to be able to take on investors. I think that these are some of the most complex businesses there are. And to watch somebody start it from ground zero and to take it to several employees in major distribution, I think is a huge accomplishment. So this episode is for those of you that are in the trenches that are already doing this, that already have physical products that you're manufacturing, but it's also For those of you that might be curious about how to do this, where to start, how do you start? What happens in the beginning? How much money am I going to have to spend? These are all questions that we'll get into. So just a little bit of background about today's guest, who is Jeremy Stewart? And the company is called Harimari, which by the way, I think is just a great name. And they sell premium flip-flops. Jeremy and his wife Lila started this company after they both lived in Indonesia, where Jeremy was a political consultant. Now, at first, I was confused because Jeremy explained to me that the techniques he used as a political consultant were actually aiding him in this physical products business, and I just couldn't connect the dots. But as you'll hear in this episode, it all kind of makes sense.
2: I started with a bag full of really bad ideas. I mean, <laughs> looking back on it, flip-flops... Continue to to stick around. It was one of those things where it was maybe never the lead idea, but the fact that I couldn't seem to cancel it out in any way, I couldn't poke holes in it as I could with a lot of other things. We started digging into other brands and digging into the industry as a whole. And what we found was it's a highly fragmented industry. I mean, the the market share leader has 10% of the market globally and domestically in the US, and it's a $25 billion a year business, sandals and flip-flops. And about 15 of that's here in the U.S. And so it's it was rife for a new entrance. It's just you got to bring something new to the table. When I set the target on flip-flops, I went around to college campuses. And we're based in Dallas. We're from Dallas. So I went around to college campuses in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and passed out flyers for uh, focus groups. And just offered college kids basically 50 bucks and free pizza to come let us listen to their opinions and attitudes on flip-flops and sandals. And so I sat behind the glass for three days in Dallas running focus groups and focus groups about a hundred people, ages 18 and called it 30, 34 men and women, and just asked all the questions that you would need to ask. Where do you buy? How often do you buy? What do you pay? What do you like? What do you dislike? We found kind of two or three key findings and just focused in and homed in on those key findings to, to start our business. And chief among those was that We knew it kind of before going into the focus groups, but just taking a physical poll of the people who came in to the focus groups. Granted, this is in spring of 2011. Over half of them were just wearing flip-flops and sandals without knowing what the the focus groups were in regard to. So there's this ever-ceasing trend towards casual in the U.S., and our kind of theory is that, you know, the two major recipients of that trend in the footwear space are running shoes and flip-flops and sandals. But second, we noticed that whether people love flip-flops or whether people hate flip-flops and won't wear them, that there's a common loathing point, that little piece that goes between first and second toe, which is called the the toe post. And really just kind of the pain periods of breaking in a new pair that go along with that. The third thing we found, and really kind of focusing on men specifically, was that we knew that women had a lot of color options. But really, when you looked at retail at that time, it was mostly just black and brown for men. And What we found just by, you know, Putting some embarrassingly bad crayon drawings and designs in front of focus groups on a projector was that if you presented it in the right way, most of the men gravitated towards some of the flip flop designs we put out there with a pop of color. It just had to be done in the right way. It couldn't be too over the top. It just had to be subtle. And so, kind of those three foundation points allowed us to kind of dig more thoroughly into the possibility of starting this business.
1: One of the things that I learned about you guys. In my research, and you can tell me if this was part of your approach, but you know, when I hear your story about these focus groups, you guys ordered your first shipment. I think you bought like 25,000 pairs of flip flaps. I kind of did the rough math on that before even having a customer or a way of distribution. It sounded very much like my story filling up two containers, bringing them to the United States, uh, hardly having a website, not doing a lot of testing or anything like that, having problems with the product when it comes over. I took what I would call like the most non lean approach to launching a business ever. And it was extremely expensive. And I probably wouldn't recommend it to most people. And it seems like you did it the same way. But I think I had like an arrogance or I had like a, I have to win at this kind of approach. Why did you feel so confident? I'm guessing first, you could tell me, but I'm guessing you had somewhere between 100000 and $200,000 invested in this before you even sold a pair of flip flops.
2: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I don't know if it was confidence. I mean, they they always say there's a thin line between, you know, stupidity and bravery. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that we kind of fell on the stupidity side for the first year or so of of our, our business. And maybe it was kind of that combined with just this irrational entrepreneurial exuberance that you're kind of starting on something new. You think you've got, you know, lightning in a bottle. You think you've got, you know, the next best thing and you want to, you know, show the world what it is. And yeah, I mean just just like you I you know I was comfortable traveling in Asia I was comfortable visiting factories so I, you know I was kind of on the the Alibaba manufacturing threads and kind of call it 2010 2011 and trying to find and source factories and locating you know, 15 to 20 that I thought were kind of good partners there you know and my good partners I mean <laughs> they responded to my emails <laughs> right they
1: actually <laughs> delivered something <laughs>
2: right they responded to my emails they provided samples and then, obviously, minimum order quantities were, were, was kind of a huge question mark. We brought those 25,000 pairs back. You know, we had huge problems, as I think anybody with their first kind of manufacturing experience abroad will tell you, or is related. I mean, ours is such a cliche. It was, you know, 40% of the pairs were unsellable. To make matters worse, the stickers that we had for importing were not big enough, according to the powers that be in, in the U S once they were received. And so we had to get all of our friends and family <laughs> down into a bonded warehouse for five days to kind of restick our or 25,000 pairs. And then kind of the third, you know, hit to our psyche and starting this business is that, you know, right when we were starting, we said, look, let's, let's do something good with those 40% of 25,000. So 10,000 pairs of flip flops that were unsellable. We said, let's do something good with those. Not just let them sit in our warehouse. So, we donated it to a 501c3.
1: Hey, just want to point out a 501c3 is basically code for a nonprofit organization in the United States.
2: Had them earmarked specifically for a few countries abroad where, you know, they wouldn't tarnish our brand, but they could still be worn. And to be clear, these were defective pairs that, you know, were just either terrible looking out of the box or just missed a few things, but could still be worn. And so, just as we're, we're launching our brand for the first time on our website and in stores, you know, where our price point is 60 bucks, we start seeing all these kind of defective pairs of Hari Mars pop up on different websites for, you know, five bucks a pair. It just all kind of added up to your classic entrepreneurial <laughs> comedy of errors. You know, we just couldn't, it's like we couldn't have launched worse. <laughs>
1: What was your thinking then? Were you like on the verge of a meltdown or were you thought like, oh, this is just part of the process or were you like ready to pack it in?
2: Funny enough, like we weren't ready to pack it at all. Like, that was never even, it never even entered our mind space. I mean, we were, I think having worked abroad for so long and in kind of a very entrepreneurial atmosphere to begin with, I think that that kind of teaches you to either adapt or kind of die, you know? We knew going into this that because of our lack of experience in footwear, we were going to make some mistakes. And the fact that also too that you know we're starting this from Dallas, which has zero footwear, just as a city, we didn't have a lot of you know mentors or or brands we could reach out to and kind of learn from. So in so a lot of respects, we knew we were kind of learning on our own. We knew there would be a lot of trial by fire. It prompted us to to obviously try to fix a lot of the things that weren't working, you know, starting with our factory and starting with kind of how the whole process was. Was netted out, but yeah, I mean, it kind of like strangely enough just added kind of fire to our tank, and we were ready to kind of come back the following year and and do even better.
1: Who were some of your advisors? You're, I'm imagining you working in this business with your wife. I can only imagine that's either a, a great relationship breaker or strengthener. And then, who were some of the people that were advising you on some of the decisions that you needed to make?
2: To answer your first question, I mean. Looking back at it now, I don't know how entrepreneurs start something on their own. I think I was very fortunate to have my wife in very early on from the get-go on Hari Mari. And for a lot of different reasons, chief among them is that you have this kind of built-in cheering section with one another. You're kind of your own best support system. She was my biggest soundboard starting off. And so I think that those are kind of the positive things. And I think the third thing that was obviously hugely important to our business is that we brought brought very different skill sets to our brand. And she had a sales background previous to Hari Mari. And she focused really on wholesale sales from the get go, as well as PR and marketing. And so we kind of divided our responsibilities from the outset. And I'll say that doesn't mean like, it <laughs> doesn't mean that there weren't issues to start off with. I mean, we, we definitely, I would say stepped on each other's toes a lot in the beginning. And it caused a lot of friction between us and maybe in a little bit in our, our relationship at home as well. I think that what we've really come to appreciate over the last you know, four or five years is that doing this together has really been a hugely important part of one of the reasons why I think we've been able to scale so fast as a business. And I think that's key for us. In terms of advisors, most of our advisors, early on at least, tended to be Leaders in kind of our local business community. I, f- I found that when we, <laughs> we would try to reach out to leaders, and whether they be in fashion or apparel or footwear, you know, there really wasn't a lot of room to secure time with folks if you weren't living in the same city. I still think that's probably one of my biggest regrets in starting our business is not being able to secure more face time with people in our industry and leaders in our industry. But I also think that there's some good in that because we weren't following any traditional roadmaps. We didn't know any better. There's a great example with regards to the kind of sales and how sales teams are usually structured. And we found very early on that there was kind of a typical way to do it. And we just said, yeah, that's not, that doesn't seem very smart or it doesn't seem like the right way to do it and kind of took a different approach. And what we have found is I think it worked. And so I think there are a lot of examples like that where because we didn't know any better, we were actually just... Taking what we thought was just smart business practice and applying it to you know a new industry.
1: How is your sales process different than other people's?
2: This is another thing that actually came out of focus groups, was that we actually thought that Harry was going to be we wanted it to be actually from our kind of initial concept, to be kind of the next bonobos or Warby Parker, but do it for flip-flops. And from our our focus groups, we quickly learned that for footwear specifically, unlike glasses or pants or shirts, people really want to try on test drive and kind of feel footwear at a store level before they're willing to kind of give you a shot. Keep in mind, this was now, you know, nine years ago and kind of maybe not the beginning, but certainly still kind of the nascent days of, you know, online retailing with regards to kind of returns and exchanges specifically for footwear. What our respondents were saying was that they, before they would trust a footwear brand online to purchase, they would need to see it in retail stores. And so that's when, my wife joined and really from day one, we had set about with her and with a few others to really charge our internal team with sales versus reaching out externally through independence. For the most part, we really try to focus on on, on growing that sales team internally on the wholesale side.
1: Jeremy, part of the story that I'm just finding to be really interesting is that in a lot of ways, you know, focus groups, pounding the pavement locally... Spending a bunch of money up front. Like you guys were acting like a large business out of the gate in terms of your time, money, and resources. And it's my experience, especially in the community that we're in, you know, internet based businesses, but a lot of them sell physical products online, that there is the idea that it makes sense to act not so much like a big company, but act like a smaller company at first, not any of this posturing and whatnot, because people kind of see through that very quickly, right? And then build yourself into whatever brand it becomes. But again, I'm coming back to this idea that you guys really started with like a lot of big ideas and a lot of, I feel like, vision, and it's worked out for you. And I find that to be interesting because it's so risky. Like it could have backfired so horribly. Was there a moment where you thought like this might backfire? All this investment, all this time?
2: Yeah, I think that our day one commitment was that we would bring ideas to the table and how we could change at least the product, like I said, the geographic avenue and then kind of the marketing and advertising, but that we wouldn't devote a lot of money to it outside of the product itself. And that we would really devote our own time, energy, et cetera, to making up. But I mean, for the first three years, four years of our business, you know, my wife and I were, and along with several interns, and we were still fulfilling all of our orders ourselves in our warehouse. We were very scrappy. We wanted to make sure that despite, you know, maybe kind of outward appearances, we were doing it the right way and we we're being fiscally responsible. And so our first office was a loft over a makeshift warehouse. I mean, you couldn't even call it a warehouse. It was like a storage room with some racking in it. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually uh, a storage room with kind of 20-foot ceilings the racks would go all the way up. There wasn't enough room to even put like a ladder in there. So we had to, you know, climb up the racks, you know, physically climb up the racks, kind of reach the top shelves to bring down product. I remember just like trying to convince an intern to come work for us. It was like, you know, the biggest sales job you've ever tried to put over on somebody just trying to convince them to, to come in because it was a, a cramped office. You could hear and feel each other breathe and you couldn't talk on the phone without, you know having somebody talk right next to you and just kind of ruin your conversation. So it was really, you know, threadbare for the first two years, I call it. And that's also because my wife and I were bootstrapping it. And we really wanted to keep it lean. And I think that part of that was the philosophy that, you know, we'd seen a lot of business plans, I'd seen a lot of business plans, and a lot of folks that were kind of willing to talk the talk, so to speak. But the real value of businesses and entrepreneurialism is the, the ability to execute. And so, we wanted to show people, we wanted to show our potential investors down the road that we we could execute and we could actually, you know, prove demand for this product before we ever raise a dollar from outside. We just decided to stay lean, and and for the first two, you know, call it a year and a half, two years, and before we raised money.
1: Who was the first person that you hired, and what did they do at the company?
2: The first person we hired was a student out of SMU, and they did everything. They did a lot of fulfillment in our warehouse. In fact, I remember in the early days, (laughs) the first year, we would physically have to go in and basically copy and paste addresses and names from our online store over into our shipping software. (laughs) Right. That was, you know, obviously pretty labor intensive and, and poor kid had to, I think it lasted like three months before he was like, I've, I've had this. And,
1: <laughs> and you're like, come on, man, you're supposed to build the process. Like, I know it's awful, but just step up to the plate here.
2: For us, it's, just, it's kind of like a challenge. I mean, I think there's something intrinsically masochistic about being an entrepreneur where you walk into work every day, you get punched in the nose and you come back the next morning asking for more. It's just this mindset of taking on these challenges. We're very fortunate to have a, a great team right now of people. We're still small. I mean, we're we're not we're not large. We have you know, call it 15 full-time employees. But I think that the thread that kind of ties everyone together is they all have the same mindset of willing to wear you know 10 different hats, 10 different jobs, and all willing to kind of take on a challenge each and every day and not get you know burn out on it.
1: I'm a, actually a product designer. That's what I went to school to to be, and so. When I tell people that one of the first companies that we own was a physical product company, that makes a lot of sense to them. But for you, um, you weren't a fashion designer and you weren't a product designer. So tell me how you went about designing products as a non designer.
2: I mean, I th- in short, really poorly. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I found a notebook the other day that was kind of hidden in the closet here at our office that was some of the first design work we did. It was terrible. It was, it was like crowns and pencils, and I literally, now looking back on I think our factory was the first factory and the second factory, probably the third we were working with were just laughing when they saw these because, I mean, unlike you know traditional CADs or tech packs they're used to receiving, uh, I mean, these were just, they were drawings. We weren't even choosing Pantone or...
1: You're just like, not that red, this red. And they're like, uh... Exactly. <laughs> well, it's even worse. It was like trying to match it,
2: attempting <laughs> to... <laughs> To crayon colors, it was, it was almost like, no, no, the no, crayon number 164, you know.
1: Like, <laughs> well, a lot of people, they lean on the factory. They just, you know, they find a, a factory that's actually making flip-flops. And they're like, hey, listen, man, I know you got a lot of great ideas, but like, this is what everybody else is doing. Let me help you out here.
2: That's right. You know, and I think that we might've even been smarter if we had just done that. Our design work was really spotty called for the first three or four years. Literally the first iteration i guess of our flip-flops the the kind of on on top of our first year i guess so this would be year two going in we just said make that same flip-flop but do it with leather you know we definitely limped along in that regard for kind of call it four years until we we finally hired a design consultant to come help us kind of design some initial lines and then we were definitely subsisting off of our other talents beyond product design for those first kind of three to four years and only i would say until three years ago four years ago did we really start making a lot of inroads into innovative materials innovative construction methods really making the flip-flop truly comfortable kind of from day one which is our brand's differentiating point it's it's such that you know you buy a pair of our flip-flops and our commitment is that out of the gates they're going to be comfortable that's from a kind of a memory foam toe piece that we had a, a kind of one of our initial designers help us design. We since filed patent for it to, you know, including memory foam and the straps to helping to make sure that the bonding process we're using and, and the layers of our flip flops is strong and holds up so that we're creating a flip flop with a long wear life so that we're not asking our customers to kind of throw away flip flops every year like you do with other brands.
1: Interesting. You know, that's, Two of the things that I wanted to ask you about here is how much IP is there in the flip flop space?
2: I think very little. It's such a simple, well, seemingly simple footwear option. I will say that it's far more complicated to make a flip flop than I think most people know about. And I think that's one of the the reasons why it took us, you know, call it six years to gain a patent on our topos, is because it is so simple that it's harder to gain IP traction on. But I think once you gain that IP, it's far more inclusive and and the kind of footprint's much larger than you might see in other highly acute kind of IP areas like like tech, for example.
1: I got to imagine that it's pretty limited just because of the uh, previous art nature of the flip-flop. But I can imagine also like one of the only other patents out there is for a bottle opener in the bottom of your flip-flop because I only (laughs) see one brand doing that. Are there other things that you can think of that are going on in terms of IP?
2: One of our core tenets from day one is to really produce kind of a classic flip flop. At least it looks pretty classic on the outside, pretty timeless. Really, kind of pushing away from fads. Really pushing in, both in color and in, in design, and then really trying to add comfort to that. So it's almost like it's like trying to to create an orthotic, uh, you know, like almost <laughs> like a, a nurse shoe. Yeah, trying to make it classic on the outside, and so. That's been our, our challenge. And so I would say that, you know, we, we don't really run into a lot of IP issues in, in that regard. I think if anything, we're trying to figure out what other, you know, what other IP can be had or what can we create that isn't out there right now, but that still kind of mirrors and, and holds up to that kind of the core tenets of our, our brand DNA.
0: It's summertime, but I know you're still working hard because you're listening to this podcast. And if you're feeling overwhelmed and you want to get a leg up on your competition, there might not be any better way to do that than to grow a great team. And now you can do that with not only part-time and full-time jobs at Dynamite Jobs, but we can help you get freelancers to do gigs for you. And we do this all 100% free to get started. Check it out over at DynamiteJobs.co. We've built a database of over 5,000 resumes that are targeted at people that understand the sorts of businesses you're running. That's from a list of over 20,000 active, subscribed job seekers and freelancers. Our role is to point the most relevant candidates towards your job. We can even help you out with interviews if you choose. We're pretty flexible. We're not just the next job board or database. We offer flexible hiring solutions to be as hands-off or as hands-on as you need. And our team is so confident that you'll love hiring with us that you can go ahead and get started with your job or gig post for free. So make your summer a winning one. Build that team and we can help you over at
1: dynamitejobs.co. Thanks for checking us out. So you go to China four times a year or so. Is it still the case in China? Because I haven't been there for several years now, but Is it still the case that like it's just one block and all they do is make flip flops or one region?
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's how it's been, and I think there's starting to be a shift. I think most of that shift is out of southern China, just given kind of rising economics of that area, and obviously the kind of U.S.-China trade worries. So I think a lot of that's beginning to shift kind of out of, so for example, footwear and flip-flops kind of traditionally, a lot of them are made in Southern China, kind of right across from Hong Kong and Guangzhou. You're seeing a lot of that production either shift kind of to Northern China, I'd say, or to countries outside of China. I guess since I've started traveling there in in earnest 10 years, people in our footwear space have, have really started to go elsewhere. It's not as Finite as it used to be. It's now starting to really spread out to other places, other areas.
1: In terms of flip flop manufacturing, there's a couple questions that I have. One of the things that I always hear from my friends in the apparel business is like, it's just a nightmare in terms of the amount of SKUs that you have to have because of all the different sizes, shapes, colors, all of that. Just a quick clarification a SKU or an SKU is a way to identify a stock product in a store environment. And a lot of times these days, it's even used to identify products online. What was your approach in the beginning in terms of like basically how to limit your capital investment, but still sell flip-flops while kind of hitting the mark? Is it the case that, you know, if you have a size seven flip-flop and a size eight and a size nine and a size 10, it's like a different mold or is it pretty easy with the flip-flop because the sizes are, you know, they don't have to be exact like a shoe?
2: Right. So when we first started out, we stayed away from molds and we just used what they call kind of cookie sheet outsoles. And mm-hmm. so you literally have a large molded rubber outsole and then you just stamp your outsoles out of that. And then you would, you know, basically sandwich together all the different pieces of the flip flop and assembly and then you'd buff it. And that was how you made it. And starting with that approach, And then limiting our size runs to just whole sizes only. So unlike in your typical shoes or whether it be running or dress shoes, et cetera, we really try to cut down skews in that regard. And what we found is that people are open to, you know, whole sizes only because it's a sandal and it it just, you know, tends to kind of fit feet a lot easier than, than shoes. And so that was really good from a kind of strategic capital investment standpoint. But yeah, we, we were still conscious of, you know, spending too much and, we really tried to go deeper on, you know, popular colors. And so our first year at the gates, we had one style and we just went and, you know, call it four or five different colors for men and women and that one style. I think that was the right move. And I'd say that the probably the worst thing a company can do, at least in my opinion, and kind of out of the gates is just having too many styles, too many skews. And really, you're fighting on so many different fronts. It's it's not just kind of capital. It's warehouse space it's freight forwarding, it's cost of inventory turn and or the lack thereof. We really we've made a concerted effort from the get-go to limit SKUs limit colors that's obviously changed over the years and we've developed more colors more SKUs but when it comes down to it I think we're still fortunate that we have the model that we have which is you know tended to kind of become almost like a wholesale first model out of the gates and now I'd say at least by revenue we're kind of 50/50 between wholesale and web. And they each serve their own purpose. It's almost like having two separate businesses under one roof. For me, I would think it would be really tough to go totally in 100% go to DTC.
1: Which is direct to consumer?
2: Right, direct to consumer, web only. There's so many things that wholesale helps us with each year. And that can be anything from, you know, because we are capturing sales almost nine months in advance of shipping them, we have a really good idea from wholesalers. From the orders they place, and once we pull them together, we see the numbers. You know what they think are going to be popular, what colors, what the size runs for them are starting to look like in terms of kind of that bell curve that we need to know about. But also, we know kind of at a minimum what our cash flows look like the next year, the following year. Whereas if if we're just direct to consumer only, you know, it's just not that it's a hundred percent gamble. I'm sure you have some idea, but still, for us, it, it's great to be able to forecast that cash that keeps kind of the lights on and everyone paid. And then add kind of direct consumer on top of that.
1: Well, I think people are probably thinking right now, like, obviously, what's going to happen to retail as we've known it for the last 50 years? One of the advantages also I have to imagine with uh, going direct to wholesale is that you actually know how to control your cost. Because, I mean, in effect, it needs to be chopped again once the wholesaler gets it, you know, to retail and then sells it to the person. So you probably learned some lessons there. If you start the other way and you go direct-to-consumer right? A lot of people might say like, oh, it's okay if I just make like 25% on this. And then you try and sell it to a wholesaler and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't going to work.
2: That's right. And I think in a lot of the ways, we've been fortunate in that regard, and because I think out of the gates, I want to say our first year out, we were 90% wholesale by revenue. It does a few things. One, it forces you to be really lean, right? In terms of your overhead. Two, it, it makes you kind of learn the intricacies of Fulfillment and warehousing from that regard for consumer goods. Once you start adding in more web, obviously, it dramatically changes your profitability.
1: It does seem, though, from the outside that like a flip flop would be a direct to consumer product, but actually, you started with a wholesale route. You know, you are essentially selling to the end user, but it's through an intermediary, but it is a retail product. It's not like you're selling Microsoft Suite for uh, corporations, you know?
2: No question. And honestly, too, I mean, one of the things that we probably don't give enough credit to that was really important early on is the intrinsic marketing that comes along with having product on the floor of really great retailers. And we've been very fortunate that because our flip-flops are created with premium customer in mind, that we tend to also be carried in premium stores, whether it be in Nordstrom or like an REI or really nice physical retail locations. And I think people seeing our product there over the years has had a tremendous effect. We found that just over the years that kind of that in-store piece tends to lend, you know, especially new brands, a lot of credibility.
1: How much of these retailers have they in the past and how much are they currently driving your design process? Are they coming to you at the beginning of the season saying, these are the colors that we're interested in? Or are they saying this is the style?
2: Sometimes. Really quickly, back to Nordstrom for one second, because I do think it's important to point out is that give them credit for bringing on new brands. Because I, I do think where we're seeing retail change is that maybe in the past, where mom and pop one off retail locations were more likely to take chances on new brands. I think what we're actually seeing because of the state of retail is that those one offs or the smaller chains are actually becoming more conservative with the brands that they carry. They're just looking to the proven money makers. Versus the new brands. And so for us, kind of given that climate, you know, even six, seven years ago, for Nordstrom to come in and, or Trunk Club or whoever it might have been at that time to say, hey, we'll take a chance on you guys was a huge deal.
1: Jeremy, you mentioned investment. Can you talk a little bit about that? I kind of get the sense that maybe you have some partners in the business outside of you and your wife at this point. And when did that happen, if if so?
2: Yeah, we We do. Like I mentioned our first uh, year and a half, two years, we bootstrapped this um, that included both r and d and a launch. We wanted to show proof of concept we wanted to show uh, proof of demand. We wanted to show that this thing, harimari, this concept of providing premium flip flops that were comfortable and you know had a pop of color, had legs. I went to friends and family kind of call it one year after we launched, and they made up you know it was called eight investors and they made up I think we raised half a million bucks first of all, we had no idea <laughs> what to even do with half a million bucks. I, I think we knew that we needed to invest in product and that you know everyone was telling us that you, you basically have to go deep in inventory. So I think 90% of that $500,000 was invested straight into inventory with this time a better factory and better manufacturing in place. But that really helped propel our business and, and kind of you know get it going from its early rounds. And so that was 2013. And then we raised a series B in 2017 and we raised about 2 million in 2017 but again none of it was institutional all high net worth folks and individuals just and most of them kind of regional to Texas and Dallas and people who were just interested in supporting a local brand and so we've really tried to given kind of the links between those raises we've really tried to maximize the value our investors kind of put by not going out every year to raise money And really try to to make those investments last and grow, I would say, more of an organic way way than kind of a hyper fundraise fueled way, which is is pretty typical. Obviously, a lot of that's because we don't want to dilute anybody, including ourselves, but also because we we just want to grow smartly. We we try to be very methodical, try to be very cognizant of how each dollar is spent. And yeah, I think that kind of proves out. And if you, you saw our headquarters today, which is still pretty minimalistic we've got you know office warehouse and you know retail store under one roof and <laughs> we're we're still pretty closely packed together even though now we have doors in some of our offices <laughs> it's still in, in a lot of ways a, a pretty you know small overhead operation by design and i, I think that that's that's one of the ways we, we hope to can kind of continue to make sure we're maximizing value and just doing the right things
1: so a couple things about this raising money First thing is, uh, are you guys still the majority owners of the company? Yeah, we are. And the second question I have about this, because we went through it, everybody thinks like, oh, you have a product company, it's doing millions of dollars. The math that nobody does is that you actually have to have millions of dollars in inventory at any given time, and so it's like the revenue is proportional to the amount of money that you have sitting on the shelves. And at some point, I'm sure for you guys, it's become a significant amount of money. That being said. You know, we always in in our physical products business and it probably didn't get to the point where yours is now, but we always like earmarked or like invested back into the inventory and our growth was I think in a lot of ways hampered by that. So, you know, you went out and you raised some money, my guess is and you can tell me if this is true or not, a lot of it probably went into inventory. That being said, I'm always curious about why someone in your position would go and raise money versus going to the bank. Because one route, they don't own any of your company. And then the other route, you know, they own a portion of your company, they may or may not have control. In your case, it doesn't seem like they do. So what was your thinking when you started to involve, you know, especially friends and family? I mean, these are fragile relationships in a lot of ways. What was your thinking versus maybe just going to the bank and saying, hey, I need a loan for inventory?
2: It's a really good question. Honestly, it's one that, that we still weigh every day. The simple answer is we do both. We do go to the bank as well as to outside investors. And I think that the reason for taking on outside investors, at least for me, there are several. But to me as a as a business owner, you've already got a lot on the line as it is. <laughs> you know, there is. There is a threshold for risk that I think some people are willing to push to 100%. And at the end of the day, I would Certainly love to retain 100% ownership, but I also want to make sure that as bank drafts go, and as, as you're still kind of connected to those bank drafts, whether it be you know personal guarantees or just by default <laughs> because it's your company, you inherently have more risk on the table. And so I think being able to kind of delever a lot of that risk is important for me. And then also too, I, th- I think there's a great kind of secondary benefit to bringing more people in. To an ownership capacity with our business, you now have, in our case, call it 40 folks who are apostles for your brand, and I think that it's a great way to, especially if you get great people involved, which I, I feel like we do. It's a great way to to help spread the word of your brand, and also to help get you know more flip-flops and more shoes on the right people's feet to help drive demand. So I just think it's a case by case scenario with business owners. And it's just kind of what are you willing to put on the line, and then how how long are you willing to kind of bear that risk?
1: I want to ask you one more question about Harry Mari Studios. It looks like a Skunkworks project within a flip flop company. So it looks like you got some bags, some shoes. You might be doing some like Kickstarter activities. What was the genesis behind that?
2: I think it's just a focus group by a different name. It's voting with your dollars, right? You are either going to fund production of this or not. And the benefit to us is seeing which products move and which don't. And then it's also financing the production of those without any, you know, bottom line hit to our core business, which is, you know, flip flops and in large part now shoes. That's the simple thinking. You know, certainly we're going to reap the benefit, hopefully, of continuing to add new products to that. And especially as we look to, to expand our product line. I'm a big believer that one of the big, you know, errors that a lot of brand owners or brand CEOs make is they start going to different product lines too quickly before people have a chance to discover their brand for, you know, what they started as. So for us, you know, I really love for people to start with a pair of hard flip flops. If they like what they see, touch, feel, they enjoy their experience, then move on to either other flip flops or into, you know, some of the kind of the retro running shoes that we're now offering or some of the boots that Both have comfort components to it that we're now offering instead of, you know, like a lot of other brands I I see. They start with what their core product is and they move too fast, whether it's like, you know, beach towels or blenders or, you know, (laughs) kites or thermometers. I have no idea. But the point is that, you know, by the time you get to your 10,000th customer, they don't even know what you were starting as or where your heritage was as a brand. Right. And most likely because you started focusing all these different things now that you're probably delivering a more mediocre product. Across the board, even with your original product, versus if you just stuck to your original idea and, and try to get really good at it.
1: I've got four more questions here. These are quick fire questions, Jeremy. So just give me like one or two sentences on them. Okay. First question Can American men embrace the backstrap on the flip flop? Will there be a point in time where that happens?
2: Possibly, possibly. I, I have to relay a really cool story and I'll, I'll take a couple sentences. Go for but... it. We've had several wounded veterans as of late, who have lost legs serving abroad, whether through IEDs or other other accidents. And we've started putting back straps on flip-flops for their prosthetic legs. And it's one of the meanest things I've ever been able to be a part of.
1: Most iconic or your favorite flip-flop can be yours or somebody else's?
2: Oh, man, I got to go with ours. I think that probably our most iconic are, are Scouts' flip-flops, really what gained traction and most immediate kind of visible notoriety for our brand, I think. And that's a flip-flop, with an, uh, a Nubuck leather footbed, and then a kind of a color-driven strap that goes across the foot.
1: Should the big toe be the mascot for the flip-flop? It seems to do the most amount of work.
2: <laughs> <I> definitely agree.
1: <laughs> Final question. Is there a flip-flop mafia having quarterly coffee decide price fixing and changes in the human foot?
2: If there is, I don't know about it.
1: Jeremy, I just want to say thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you on the show. I could literally talk flip-flops for the next hour and a half. I'm very passionate about it. It seems like you are too. I wish you and your wife and your family and everybody at your company the best.
2: Ian, thanks for having me. really appreciate
1: it. Cheers. Dan, did this get you excited to start another product business? I mean, forklifts, warehouses, SKUs, inventory management systems, complex financials. What do you think? I got to say, first off, your
0: interview skills are off the chains. You should do more. If you could even elevate your interview skills to the next level, and we could just sell more advertising against the podcast or raise our rates. This to me seems like a more interesting business model than going back to doing the really truly difficult things that are required, and running a business that requires inventory and funding and, and and product design and all these kinds of things. So,
1: I like the interviews. Actually, I like the talk itself. I can't say I'm not tempted, Dan. It's like once you have the skill set, once you understand how it works, all the moving parts. It's like it's it's very tempted to hear this and think like, oh, yeah, I got a couple ideas kicking around. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll start a focus group or two. I'll tell you what, enormous thanks to the folks at Hari
0: Mari, not only for coming by the show and doing this interview with us, but also for starting this flip-flop company so that Ian isn't going to be bugging me about it every week anymore. So we were right
1: up on the ledge there, and uh, now we're back to just sticking to the pod. I don't know if you heard, Dan, but he said there's still room for new incumbents. If I'm being completely honest,
0: as I get older, I realize how hard growing these businesses is, you know? And so if it is the case that we're going to take some resources and start a new product business. I just want to make sure we're sure about it. (laughs) All right, boss man, we are going to get moving on to rock and reviews.
1: What track are you going to play for us this week? Dan, this is an oldie but a goodie and uh, had to search long and hard again this week to find one that you approved of. This is Cold Cave and it's off their album from 2011 called cherished to light years this is the great pan is dead
0: well ever since we brought back your music stylings and the long forgotten rock and reviews we got a new review give us the applause five stars from brennan heard on the latest pod that you hadn't had a fresh review in six months so i figured i'd drop one by thanks brennan We appreciate it. The boss man is beaming. He's a new listener here. I heard about you guys from Authority Hacker, Empire Flippers, and Niche Pursuits. That's right. You have to hear about us from multiple sources before you decide to listen to the Tropical Podcast. (laughs) Excellent content. I really enjoy hearing about location-independent businesses. And one last bit, age is a virtue on your pod. That's right, boss man. Brennan thinks Our age is a virtue that comes with more experience and more value. I'm 21, and it's excellent to hear from guys in their 30s and 40s. Which one of us is in their 40s? (laughs) Oh, no. Both of us pretty soon, Brennan, since you've got real responsibilities like kids to take care of. And in my case, of course, I have a bicycle, Brennan. So it gives an extra layer of importance to find some stability in how you run your business. What an excellent excellent review. I swear to God, these kids get smarter, younger, and I stay the same as I get older.
1: I don't know if you stay the same. I'm looking at your beard and there's a little bit of gray in it. I just want to tell you though, the other day I went back through my photos because mine's like getting gray rapidly. I don't know if it's a you know, stress from you or my new child or what it is. Two years ago, very little gray, like very little gray. Now I'm starting to look like Chris Kringle. So, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to see that you're also going a little bit gray. You are behind me though. Still, <laughs> we appreciate your reviews and
0: some news. We got a phone call from someone we gave a shout to last week. Let's roll
1: it. Dan and Ian, thank you for the shout out. It's Ryan, as you can hear from this African accent. Yes, we had an amazing DCX, but at best, it was absolutely phenomenal. You should also credit Ed, who was helping me with this, and Catalina and the rest. It was all a team effort, and we had some great attendees, and in fact, the thing that made the event a success was the attendees, as you know. But hey, it was fantastic. Unfortunately, I'm not making it to DCBKK this year. I wanted to chat to you guys about this, but I'm heading for Austin next year because I want to actually ship my motorhome across and do some touring in the States, so Yeah, you should definitely talk more about this community events because it's fantastic, man. So anyway, thanks for the good podcast and thanks for the shout out. Have a good time. See you guys soon.
0: Hey, Rian, thanks for calling in. And again, big shout for helping out with DCX Budapest. Heard so many wonderful things about this. And, and, you know, we didn't mention Ed, but you don't mention the guy behind the guy. We all know Ed's the guy behind
1: the guy. Ed is the guy. You can't mention the guy on the show. Ed knows who he is. Everybody knows who Ed is, but you can't talk about Ed. <laughs> Sorry, we forgot, we forgot for the shout
0: there, and we're moving fast. And Ian has suggested that uh, what an incredible honor it is to have people take their motorhomes and caravan
1: to the events. And uh, Ian has a special offer he'd like to offer you, Ryan. That's right. Last year, I think three people showed up in motorhomes. This year, it sounds like it might be four, and you're importing yours. So what I'm going to offer you, Rian, is free hookups and parking at my house for as long as you'd like. And in fact, I'd like to know more about how much it costs to ship a motorhome to the United States, because I might just need to go motorhome shopping for you.
0: <laughs> Maybe uh, you know, one of Ian's great pleasures in life is helping other people secure wonderful car deals. And if you want to read more about that, Search for Tropical MBA and the word entrepreneur-mobile, and you'll see sort of the seeds of Ian's wisdom, but uh, you cannot imagine how deep that rabbit hole goes. Oh, my goodness. We've even done a few episodes on the topic and on deal-cutting in general, sort of the core of Ian's entrepreneurial spirit. We'll link up to those this week.
1: Tell you what, every time my significant other thinks that she's going to catch me on the computer looking at something naughty, she peeks around the screen and it's cars. And she's, she's both disappointed and happy at the same time every time.
0: <laughs> and a big shout to all the members of the Dynamite Circle who are hosting those member-run DCX events all around the world. And of course, Ian, although even though Rian won't be there, we are looking forward to DCBKK this year already the plans are in motion hundreds of members from all around the world are flying in couldn't be more excited that's it for this week's show thanks for listening we'll be back as always next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern standard time